And we are going to continue our journey through the epic book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 3. And we're trying to cover a chapter a Sunday through the book of Exodus. So there's so much going on. And I've been focusing on the theme of leadership. What does it mean to be a leader? What does it mean to be a leader from a biblical perspective? As I've mentioned, what the world is looking for in a leader may overlap at times with what the Bible affirms a good leader is or should be. But many times, those two qualities that people are looking for, what the world is looking for in a leader and what God is looking for, can often be opposites. They can often be very different. So it's important that for us as followers of Jesus that we learn from God's Word what God is looking for in a leader. And so we're calling this series in Exodus, Following Jesus, Leading Like Moses. So this morning, we're going to be looking at a message I'm calling The Leader's Call. The Leader's Call. So if you would, I'll have the passage up on the screen. You can follow along with me as we read the Word of God together. This is Exodus 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, Well, what is his name? What shall I say to them? 
And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the land of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites to a land flowing with milk and honey. Then they will heed your voice and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. And you shall say to them, the Lord God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Lord, I pray that you would breathe these words to life in our hearts this morning. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us as you revealed yourself to Moses. That we would know your name. That we would know your character that we would know that you are with us and that you are for us. That we would know that our sufficiency for life and ministry is not by our hand, but by your mighty hand. And so I just pray, Lord, that you would make disciples of us this morning. Give us open eyes, open ears, and open hearts to what the Spirit has to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Exodus 3 is a monumental chapter in the history of Israel. The Exodus event is an event forever to re be remembered by the Jewish people to this very day. And it becomes a paradigm in the New Testament for salvation. What does the Christian life look like? The Exodus tells us that when we are born into this world, spiritually, we are all born into Egypt. That is worldliness. We come into a world that does not know God, does not worship God, and that goes after idols. And everyone is born into that world. And when God saves a person, so at an altar call, you give an invitation, somebody comes forward, that's not the end of the story any more than coming out of Egypt is the end of the Old Testament. 
salvation is God initially takes a person out of complete bondage and slavery to sin, but that's really the beginning of a lifelong journey. The real journey is not getting God's people out of the world, but getting the world out of them. The real story of the Old Testament is not getting Israel out of Egypt, but getting Egypt out of Israel, as we would see throughout the rest of their history. And so the story of Exodus and what we're seeing here and what's going to happen and the name of God and this man Moses becomes a paradigm for followers of Jesus today. And so I want to share with you five points about leadership that we can learn this morning. And you'll notice each of these points, I include the word leader. So before you disqualify yourself and say, well, I'm not a leader, that's not my job, or I'm just this, or I'm just that, let me remind you that as we go through these points, basically everything I say a leader is are things all Christians should do. You'll notice that the things that qualify someone to be a leader are really things all Christians should do. But what you'll find out in most church experience is most Christians aren't doing these things. When it says fear not, all Christians are supposed to fear not, but most Christians are expecting the pastor to fear not while you do all the fearing for him. But the real call is we're all supposed to do these kinds of things. So if we think of leading in terms of influence, do you have influence on another human being's life? Yes, you do. Some more than others, so don't disqualify yourself. And none of the things here are specifically for vocational leaders. They're for you. They're for all of us. So point number one. Leaders are attentive to God's extraordinary work through the ordinary. Look at verses 1 through 4. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So the context is basically, if you allow me to make a cultural translation, it's a Monday morning. It's a Monday morning. Moses is going to work like he goes to work every day. It's just another Monday morning on the freeway, in the car, rushing out the door with your coffee, some stress maybe about what's going to go on and where you're going to go, where am I going to find land? I mean, I'm in the desert and the sheep need to eat. Where am I going to go next time? Where's, where's that going to be? It's just an ordinary day. There's nothing special about it. And yet on this ordinary day where he's simply going to work, doing what he always does, notice that Moses is attentive to seeing God in the little things. Now, most commentators will tell you that the sight of a bush burning in the desert is actually not that weird. It gets very dry in the desert, doesn't it? And when it gets very dry in the desert, you can often see bushes catch fire for various reasons. So simply a bush burning is not necessarily a big deal. 
But notice sort of this attentiveness, this curiosity of Moses. He sees something that on the surface, there's nothing strange or weird about it. A bush burning, not weird. But notice he must give enough attention to this ordinary occurrence, a bush burning. He must look at it long enough in order to notice something strange about it. He has to look at this ordinary occurrence that can happen anywhere, any day, any time, and not give it a second look, and he has to somehow know. He has to somehow just happen to look at this ordinary event intently. He has to sort of almost meditate on it to be able to look through it with spiritual eyes. And as he does it, as he gives attention to this ordinary occurrence, he sees an extraordinary thing. The bush is burning, but it is not being burnt up. And he says, I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I'm going to stop where I was going. What it, my plan for work was just to do this, but I'm going I'm to look at this. I actually think this is amazing in the man Moses. I think many times when people say they don't see God working in their lives, it's because they have not learned to look for God in the ordinary. They've been trained to only look for God when some obscure, like random, bizarre, miraculous thing happens. Lightning coming down, whatever it is. Like, that's God. That's how people think of it. And indeed, God can do these miraculous, amazing, rare occurrences. We're going to see quite a few of them coming up in the book of Exodus, aren't we? With the ten plagues of Egypt. But does God always work that way? I think the very fact that it's this same story, God can shout to the world who he is through the plagues, and yet here he is, setting a bush on fire and hoping Moses wants to give it a little extra attention. Leaders are attentive to God's extraordinary work through the ordinary. Now, how do you go about that, though? I would say that our attention in daily life to following God, to hearing His voice, reading God's Word, tunes you into God's work. Reading God's Word tunes you into God's work. Praying to God makes you sensitive to God's work. So the less we pray, and the less we read God's word, and the less we gather with God's people, the more dull our senses become. And it is not as though God doesn't love you if you're not being spiritually healthy. He loves you anyway. He loves you. He loves you if you're not going to church. He loves you if you're not reading your Bible. He loves you if you're not praying. But because he loves you, he doesn't want to leave you there. I love my kids, whether they're eating healthy or being healthy or not, right? But because I love them, I want them to be healthy. So if you find that you are not seeing God in the ordinary, you're not seeing it, ask yourself, am I developing my spiritual awareness? Am I doing the things I know God has given me to do that shape me and make me sensitive and able to pay attention to the burning bushes He puts in my life? 
And I think this is one of the great abilities that great spiritual leaders have, both in the Bible and in church history, and even in my own experience. Great spiritual leaders know to how to look for God in the little things of the day. Each day, rather than just another Monday morning, where life just seems to be going on, out as spiritual leaders know how to see God in every little thing along the way. Point number two. Despite how circumstances appear, a leader trusts the Lord, sees, and cares about our suffering. Look at verses 5 through 7. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Look at that in verse 7. I have surely seen the oppression of my people. I've heard their cry. I know their sorrows. Despite how circumstances appear, a leader trusts the Lord, sees, and cares about our suffering. Again, this is something all Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to see that even when we're going through hard times, even when we're going through difficulty, even when we're scared, even when we're fearful, even when we don't know how this relationship is going to be healed, even when we don't know how we're going to pay this or that bill, even then, a leader knows to trust that the Lord sees and cares. One of the most common feelings, again, for a Christian for somebody following Jesus, is to feel like God does not see or know or care about what we're going through. Believers can feel that way. I've felt that way. I've felt like like God, seriously, like he he doesn't know. He doesn't see this. And and maybe it's because like, you know, I'm not that big of a deal. Maybe that's what it is. And he's got bigger problems. He's like worried about nations, right? You know, there's, you know, what's, what's Saudi Arabia doing? They're hacking Jeff Bezos' phone again. And then you got Russia. And then you got, you know, the U.S. And you got the, the whole uh, impeachment trial. And he's worried about big things. Maybe he just doesn't have time to see me. We can say these kinds of things to ourselves, but part of being spiritually mature and what makes a good leader is trusting that the Lord sees and cares about our suffering. The Hebrew says, ra'o ra'iti, ra'o ra'iti, and it's this repetition of the word to see twice, and it creates the sort of English expression, I have seen carefully. My eye is sharp on this. I have observed. It is the picture of not only has God noticed your suffering, He's saying, I have kept a sharp eye on every little thing going on. And I'm attentive to it. And here we are invited to believe with Moses and the people of God that despite their suffering in Egypt, God sees, God knows, and God will deliver in His time and in 
his way. Leaders know this. They believe this. My question for you is, do you believe that God sees and cares about your suffering this morning? If an ancient Israelite could dare to question God's love, the Christian cannot. For we have the supreme answer in Jesus Christ, who when we say to ourselves, God, do you care? God, do you even love me? Jesus says this much. And he stretched out his arms and died. If Israel, and I, could, I can see it, I can get it, okay, yeah, does God care? The Christian, if we go back to the cross, and that's what we must do, as Spurgeon says, every chance I get, I make a beeline to the cross. When the Christian starts to say to themselves, well, I'm not sure God cares, we cannot say that. For as soon as we get our eyes back on Jesus, we see his outstretched arms. And I have to admit, regardless of my feelings, regardless of what's going on in my life, I have to say, yes, you love me. You see me. You know and you care. Point number three. A leader knows that the, quote, promised land is full of opposition. Look at verses 8 through 9. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good land and large land to a land flowing with milk and honey. Let's stop there. I've heard this so many times, and and it is a pet peeve of mine, and I'm going to say it again. Many times, Christianity and the Christian way of life gets presented like half of verse 8. Come to Jesus now. Is your life barren and dry? Do you have relationship problems at home? Are you physically sick? Do you lack money? Do people not generally like you for some reason? Come to Jesus and it will be a land flowing with milk and honey. What's the problem with telling people that? It's half true. It's half true. I would never, ever, ever, ever tell somebody that following Jesus is not beautiful. That it's not wonderful. That it's not sweet. That it's not the greatest and best life you could possibly live. But I will also always finish the rest of verse 8. Though the Christian life is wonderful, though it's the life you were meant to live, I will not sit here and tell you that the promised land is not full of, and follow me, Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. I've heard it so many times from so many people, and I would bet some of you believe this today. That the Christian life is not meant to have any problems. And one of the ways this gets reinforced, it gets reinforced in a certain saying. I've heard this. People say, well, you know it was the Lord because it was easy. Oh, I know this must have been the Lord because there were no problems. Really? That's rather interesting. Now, don't get me wrong. God certainly can do things easy. But if you read the Bible, 
I don't know where in the world you get the idea that Christianity is going to be easy. That the Christian life will be trouble-free. As a matter of fact, not only is it very clear that the promised land is full of opposition, Jesus himself said, in this world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. That sounds a lot like the promised land to me. Jesus is saying, look, you you can trust me. I've overcome the world. You can be of good cheer, but you will have tribulation. I will give you the promised land. I will give you the life you were meant to live. But don't think in your mind that the life you are meant to live in this world prior to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, that the good life here, that the promised life here will be without trouble. How many married couples have I talked to, Christian married couples, who thought that marriage would be the promised land? Oh, I had all these, I had a bad upbringing, and I had lots of bad dating relationships. Oh, but I met the one. The promised land. And I know when I marry this person, it's going to be like Disney. Happily ever after. We're never going to argue. We're never going to disagree. We're never going to change and struggle and our feelings aren't going to change and and kids won't mess up the whole little dating dynamic we thought we could put in a bottle and keep forever. I just We didn't know about that. There's going to be trouble in every good thing in this world. Like the wine offered to Jesus on the cross, every sweet thing in this world is mingled with vinegar. It is not pure joy. The joy of having children will be tainted somewhat by sin, by rebellion, The first time your adorable little baby boy or girl looks up at you and says, no. Even the joy of a child, the joy of that precious little one you've brought into the world can break your own heart. And one of the things I see is that many Christians quit the faith. They quit going to church. They quit living the Christian life partly because someone told them it was meant to be different. That if you just do the right thing, you go to the right place, or this is what God says. And, and I'm not saying this to you know, burst anyone's bubble per se. I'm doing it so you'll continue. I do want to read you the fine print. I want the, the fine print to be 12 fonts so you can see it clearly. Look, following Jesus is the best thing you can do, and it will be hard. The promised land is the place God wants you to go. It's the life you're meant to have. And there will be opposition. Paul in the New Testament even says, for a great and effective door for ministry has been opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Is Paul saying some strange thing in the New Testament? Or is this the story of God's will and way for his people from the very beginning? And leaders are simply Christians who understand that even the life we are promised here, the promised land, is going to be full of opposition. 
So are you bewildered or doubtful today by the fact that the journey of the Christian life has been a difficult one for you? If so, who taught you to believe that it wouldn't be? I know it wasn't me, and I know it wasn't God's holy word. That came from somewhere else. It could be Christian tradition. We call it Christianese. There's these little sayings that are so common and recurring in churches that you almost think they're scripture, except they're not. And sometimes they can be little proverb-type things, little wise sayings, little help. And they're not untrue. They're not biblical, but they're not anti-biblical. Sometimes they're anti-biblical. They're things we want to be true, but they're not true, and God didn't say them. And if people believe them and then get disillusioned by them, they actually think God has let them down. And that's the worst thing you could do. I would rather tell people it's going to be hard. It's no strange thing if hard things happen to you, but that God will be with you and that there's nothing wrong with you. You didn't do anything wrong because there's opposition. Then to have someone believe that God's promised that you will not have any more problems and that he has failed to deliver. I think that is very, very dangerous. Point number four. An effective leader knows they have been called by God. Look at verses 10 through 15. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have been brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel, and they say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. So I said an effective leader knows they have been called by God. I think it is very, very important that all of you know the calling of God on your life. Because situations in life will come that will challenge that. They will challenge your calling. And you're going to be tempted to go to the left hand or to the right. Really doesn't matter as long as it's not the way God wants you to go. You need to know your calling. Now, there's two senses of calling that everyone in this room has. Two callings. There's our common calling. The common calling is the most important. The common calling is that as a disciple of Jesus Christ. The most important thing about you is your relationship to Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. First and foremost, your calling as a disciple, which is not different from any other believer. That's not what's unique. And what is common is what is most important, that we know that we are called by God to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. That's the meaning of your life. So when you go through hard times, you have to cling on that calling. Because when you go through a trial, the trial, by definition, is not pleasant. It hurts. 
a natural, normal reaction is to get out of it, to alleviate it, to do whatever you can. And I'd say as long as it's not, you're not doing sinful things in order to do that, that's fine. You don't purposely go around looking to get in a trial, hardly. So if you can get out of a trial and you don't have to do anything <laughs> illegal, unethical, sinful to do it, by all means. But you and I all know there are trials in life that no matter what I do, no matter what I turn to, no matter what I try, I can't get out of it. I am simply staring down the face of this trial. What do I do then? Is this trial proof that somehow I'm not called or I've lost my calling? No, this is the very instrument of affirming your call. Because since your common call is to become more like Jesus, that's actually what trials force you to do. The trials are like a fire that burns away impurity. Trials reveal. That's one of the things fire does. Fire brings not only heat, but light. If there's darkness, many of us can think, honestly, we're great, wonderful people. Like, honestly, I thought I was a much more spiritual person before I got married than after. Like, before I got married, when I, I didn't have to live with somebody, like, day in and day out to, to annoy me or for me to annoy them or to rub each other the wrong way or to have kids keeping you up all night. How much of a Christian are you on one hour of sleep for a year? Literally, my, my oldest son, Michael Jr., slept about an hour a night for a year. I was a sophomore Bible teacher. I taught six times a day, 30 students, each class, 180 students. And I felt like it was just D-Day and the waves of the soldiers just period after period were just overwhelming me. And I'm doing this on one hour a night's sleep. I remember by sixth or seventh period, I would literally be talking. And then I didn't want them to know that this was happening because it would be like blood in the water with sharks. But I would put my hand on the wall as I would try to keep from passing out and being so dizzy. It felt like I was doing somersaults in my head. I was that sick, I was that tired, I was that beat up, and God showed me through that trial how much of a Christian I really was. Because it's a lot easier to be a Christian when I've slept eight hours, had a nice breakfast burrito from Bill's Drive-In, I've had my two cups of coffee with a shot of espresso, and I'm not teaching six waves of 30 15-year-olds. It's easy to look like I'm a holy, wonderful Christian. But when that, you start taking that away, you take away your sleep, you, you add some pain to your life, you, you take certain people out and you take this in and you, you pull this out, you start seeing. It's, it's a fire in your life that allows you to see who you really are. I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes you, you, know, you feel like you're, you're maybe becoming less spiritual because of a trial. Oh, gosh, I had more faith the other day and now I have less. Actually, no, this is who you are. This is who you were the day before all this. You just couldn't see it. The trials reveal who you are. They didn't make me an unfaithful person. They revealed who I am. And if your common calling is your primary calling, it's the most important thing about you, then God is going to have to do things, bring things, allow things in your life that reveal who you are. And that's not bad. 
what God can do through a trial is reveal the impurity in us, reveal the doubt, and that is an opportunity for faith. That is when we grow and become the men and women of faith that God is calling us to be. So we have to know that we are called as disciples, and that's the most important thing about us. But secondly, you all have a unique call. It is the work to which God has given you this moment, this season of your life. Not last season, not the next season. Right now, the unique gifts, talents, time, opportunity, or even the lack thereof. The limitations that you have. That's what God has given you. And your job with what you're doing and your sphere of influence and what you have and what you do is supposed to be the vehicle for the first calling. You realize your calling as a Christian disciple as an attorney, as a doctor, as a real estate agent, as a mother, as a father, as a teacher, as a musician, as an artist. You are seeking to live out your common call, most important thing about you, through what God has given you to do in this season of your life. And you need to know that He has given you these things, this ability, this time, and even the lack thereof as your unique call. What we shouldn't do when it comes to unique call is look at anybody else. It's one of the worst things we can do to discourage the use of our unique call is to look at somebody else's unique call. If you want to look at somebody else's common call as a disciple, amen. That's what fellowship is about. We're supposed to encourage each other to keep our eyes on the cross, our eyes on Jesus, our eyes on eternity. And since most of the world out there is not doing that, we need to get around each other. We need to encourage each other. So you can look to each other for that. But when it comes to your unique call, you should not be looking at anyone else because your call is unique. Some people have more opportunity, more ability, more time, more talent, and even the health, physical health, to do things that perhaps you can't do. And what you should not do is look at them and feel bad about where you are. God, in his infinite wisdom, has put you right where he wants you to be and to simply work with what you have, not with what you don't have. That is all God wants from you. A faithful person is not what everyone else thinks about you. It's what God thinks about you. Remember that. A faithful person is not what everyone else thinks about you. It's what God thinks about you. And he knows your limitations. I've shared this story with you many times, but it's dear to my heart, and I think it makes the point. When I was a little boy, my dad was a pastor. My dad traveled the world had a church of over a thousand people in a small town, couldn't go anywhere without people knowing who we were and whether I just saw Ghostbusters and then go talk bad about the pastor because he lets his kid watch demonic movies, something like that. No, seriously, everywhere we went, people knew everything about our business everywhere we went. My dad was traveling all over the world, planting churches all over the San Francisco Bay Area. I've got newspaper clippings of him speaking at a giant conference in Scotland, in England, in Mexico, in Canada, and many other places. 
God gave my dad time and talent and the physical health to do those things. But a season came in his life later where he got sick. Eventually, he was diagnosed with cancer. And when those things happened, the limitations on his life increased. He could no longer travel to other countries. He no longer had the energy to plant other churches. And it turns out most people only want to be there for your success, not in your pain. And so many people moved on and found a place where the pastor wasn't sick. Now, one of the things that I struggle with, and, and even to this day, is I remember looking at my dad, who was a very strong man, strong, charismatic, gifted, talented man. And sort of the fight of his life as a man was to not look back at what he was once able to do and compare himself to that. And instead, ask himself today, in this season, with all the limitations I have placed on me, what does faithfulness now look like? And I can honestly say to the eye, you might go, oh, well, that earlier season, that's success, and this is failure. I disagree. I would even say I saw greater humility, greater love, greater grace, and greater forgiveness in the latter days than I ever did before. I would say that faithfulness is measured by what God has given you, not what he hasn't. Don't look at other people. Don't even look at yourself in some other season of your life. Look to what God has given you now with all of its limitations and trust that, look, if the Lord allowed that to happen, then he didn't want him flying all over the world as much as we all think that's that's what success and that's what ministry and that's what we ought to be able to do. If you, that's not what God is giving you to do, focus on what he has because that is your unique calling. I want to point out that this is also one of the key passages of the Old Testament where the divine name is, is mentioned. We all know it as I am. I'll bring out a couple of things about this. Because a name is indicative of the character of the God being spoken of. That's why a name matters. So when we say praying in Jesus' name, we're not just saying chant it like abracadabra. That's how some people think about the name. The name is indicative of the character, the person you are calling on, and who they are. And so when God gives his name, he's telling us something about who he is. And what's interesting is there's actually a couple different ways the name is worded here. The standard way is the present form of I am. And that is true and that is accurate and Jesus even affirms it in his own ministry. Saying before Abraham was I am in the present. But actually one of the earlier uses of that verb is in the future tense. And it's actually literally worded I will be who I will be. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. And some even say they believe earlier on in, in earlier Hebrew, before the Hebrew Bible was codified by the Masoretes in the 11th century, that it was a causative. This is a theory, but I think it's theologically fruitful, which would say, I am he who causes to be. Now, I want you to think about those three names for a minute. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. 
and I am he who causes to be. Interestingly, all three of those are true of the God of the Bible. When we say that God, I am who I am, what God is saying is, I am the one who can be counted on to always be who he is day in and day out with no change. I am who I am. How many people can say that you are the exact same person today you were 20 years ago? Nobody. Some of you might say, I'm basically the same, but I've changed, I admit that. Some of you are like, no, you, you don't even want to know <laughs> who I was or what I was doing 20 years ago. Not a good idea. It's not, you know, it's not PG. Don't want to talk about it. None of us in this room can say I am who I am. I am exactly the same as I've always been in every moment, in every circumstance, in every relationship. I have always been true to my character without any fault whatsoever. God is the ultimate relationship the human heart longs for. A relationship with a person who is all faithful, all loyal. The best we can do with people in this world is come up with mostly faithful, mostly loyal people. And then we can set up contracts and accountability systems to try to you know, mitigate any temptation to not be faithful or loyal. We can do all that with people. But God is who he is. The one that can be counted on never to change every day. The same yesterday, today, and forever. The I am. The I will be who I will be. It's the idea that God reveals himself by his actions. He's going to show himself to Moses and to Israel. He's revealing himself now simply, extraordinarily through the ordinary means of a burning bush. But in a moment, he will reveal himself through his mighty miracles aimed at liberating the children of Israel from Egypt. When he says, I will be who I will be, we will see what God is going to do in our lives in the future. We can trust that God sees and acts and he is going to do something. And so it is prospective. We can look forward to the faithful one in the present doing whatever is necessary in the future. And then I like the third one, the causative. I am he who causes to be. Genesis 1 and 2 teaches that God made the world and everything in it. Nothing happened by accident or random chance. God spoke the world into existence. He is the one who causes everything that exists to be. And nothing exists apart from his will. This is a fruitful concept for the sovereignty of God. The idea that even though human beings in this world make real human choices that they are responsible for and that God didn't make them do that. And yet, and yet, he who causes to be is sovereign over all of that so that he can still get your story and my story where he wants it to go regardless of what anyone else does. It is he who causes to be. The God who can get a Pharaoh of Egypt whose heart was as hard as stone, who could say in his heart, I will never let Israel go, can cause that man 
to let his people go. The Lord is the God who causes to be. And lastly, point number five. A leader knows that he or she is completely dependent upon God. Look at verses 16 through 20. Actually, we'll just look at 19 and 20. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not even by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. The journey of Moses' life, 40 years in Egypt, growing up as an Egyptian, but he's a Hebrew. Then he's neither. He leaves. He goes to Midian. He's there 40 years. And at 80 years old, is called to go back. A failed Messiah, if you remember. That's why he's in Midian. He was a failed Messiah. He already tried this. Then he's not even fully accepted by his people because he's, he's like half Egyptian and he grew up in the master's house, viewed with suspicion. How is God going to take a failed Messiah, not accepted by his own people, seemingly disqualified in a number of ways, how is he going to make him the Savior of this people? Even here, God says, not even by a mighty hand will Pharaoh let you go. In other words, no matter how hard you try, no matter how strong you are, no matter what you do, it's not enough. And a spiritual leader, a Christian leader, knows that. They know that, that apart from God, I can do, as Jesus said, nothing. But that it's all about God's mighty hand, and that God's mighty hand at work in my life can accomplish seemingly impossible things. The greatest obstacle to being used by God, listen to this, the greatest obstacle to you being used by God is not your weakness. It's your self-sufficiency. God delights in using weak people. Did you know that? The Old Testament teaches that's actually why God chose Israel. He said, I did not choose you because you were the mightiest nation. I didn't choose you because you were the most numerous. In fact, you were the least I simply chose to set my love on you and to take what was weak in the eyes of the world and to confound the wise. That is who God is. And a spiritual leader is not somebody who boasts in their skills and in their talents and their strengths. They know that apart from God, they can do nothing, but they know that in admitting their weakness, they are strong. In confessing that it is ultimately what God does and not what I do, that somebody becomes a spiritual leader. Do you believe that you are utterly dependent upon God for everything? Or deep down, do you still rely on your own gifts, talents, other people, and your circumstances? God may be leading you through a season where you will be weaned off of all of the things you've been trusting in. And you're going to start to feel weak. And if you're like me, I do not like feeling weak. But if we look to Scripture, if we look to the heart of God, that it's if we confess our weakness 
and be utterly dependent upon God for everything in prayer and in faith, God can do more for us than we could ever do for ourselves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that the revelation given to us in Jesus Christ is greater, Scripture says, than the burning bush revealed to Moses. Lord, I just pray that we would see Jesus this morning with fresh eyes. That we would understand in ways more clear and more faithful to Scripture what it means to follow you in this world. What it means to know our calling as Christians. What it means to live out our unique calling in this season of our lives, both with what we have and with what we don't. What does faithfulness look like in this season? Lord, we thank You that You are the God of the impossible. That it is not by might nor by power, but by Your Spirit, says the Lord. Teach us to be a humble people who depend on You for everything and so believe that anything is possible. Teach us to love one another with what you've given us. Teach us to advance the truth of your kingdom and what it means to follow you. And I do pray for your spirit to come down now and be poured out on these men and women that they might become spiritual leaders. Christians who not only know the word, but do the word. Empower them now, I pray, to influence others for Christ. We thank you that we have Jesus who never fails. Even when we falter, Christ never does. And so we look to him as the author and finisher of our faith, the perfect leader, the one our hearts need and desire to follow. Help us to follow him more closely this week. I pray this in his name. Amen.